culture to politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to assess the damage and maybe to hope that the worst is over concerning Hurricane Ian. There's also a very, very strong bit of good news. We have avoided the damage from Hurricane Stupid which uh, was the threatened governmental shutdown. Uh, believe it or not, there were 25 people in the Senate, uh, that's a fourth, who uh, still voted to shut down the federal government. What a terrific idea, especially in the middle of a hurricane. I mean, unbelievable. We will give you that news. There's also terrible and very disturbing news in Europe, I mean, and not only the fact that uh, Putin is going ahead with these referenda and the annexation, formal annexation of parts of the Ukraine. And uh, Zelensky is being very clear. No, this is legally, it is ethically, it is historically part of Ukraine. And what does this mean? Well, it means the war continues. We will talk, though, about the sabotage pipelines, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2. These were the pipelines that were supposed to bring uh, all kinds of necessary uh, fuel supplies into Europe to help them get through winter, where winter, particularly in northern Europe, can be a pretty difficult thing. Somebody blew up the pipelines. Russia says... It was America that blew them up. Anybody think that's true? Uh, most of the world says it was Putin who blew it up. And uh, basically, what happened? What does it mean? We'll be talking with Elizabeth Braw about that, who is an expert on particularly the Baltic region where all of this is occurring. And uh, she is with the American Enterprise Institute, and she'll be joining us soon. We'll also be talking about the latest research on crime. I mean, everybody knows we have this explosion of crime in America. And why is that? Could it have to do with some of the cutbacks on policing? I mean, in Seattle, they tried to, at one point, cut the police uh, department budget by half. The, even the city council has now acknowledged that was dumb, that was foolish. And speaking of foolish, uh, there is also a... Uh, a remarkable story about how successful the city of Seattle has been. Now, there's something you don't you normally hear in the same sentence, city of Seattle and successful. But they've been very, very successful in buying old, unused hotels and motels in order to house homeless people. And they have a whole bunch of them, more than 10. And uh, these would house uh, literally hundreds of people. The only problem is... They can't figure out how to get the people to move into the hotels. This is almost comedy. It would be comedy if it weren't part of the uh, $114 million the city bragged about spending on homeless services to make the problem better. We will get to that as well on the Michael Medved Show. Okay, first of all, breaking news. And I love the idea of being able to lead with some breaking news that's actually positive. It happens every once in a while. Even under the Biden administration, Biden had nothing to do with it, really. Uh, the Senate approved legislation to keep the federal government operating until mid-December, as well as to fund emergency new aid for Ukraine. Thank goodness. 
The uh, legislation which was passed 72 to 25 would prevent a partial government shutdown after the current fiscal year expires. When? This Friday night. Yeah, it's happening right now. Uh, this legislation avoids very bad things, shutting down the government and does a lot of good things. Money for the people of Ukraine, funding for communities reeling from natural disasters, aid to families with their heating bills, just to name a few, said Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on the Senate floor. The bill now must be passed in the House before heading to President Biden's desk, where he is expected to sign it, of course. Without passage of the bill, a partial government shutdown would occur. A shutdown would trigger furloughs for hundreds of thousands of federal workers, but critical functions such as border security, such as it is, benefits payments, and airport operations would continue. House Democrats said today, this morning, they don't anticipate any hiccups in passing it through their chamber. Uh, anybody who's upset about them passing a continued government funding bill and uh, and one that, by the way, is, is crucial in the direction of the war in Ukraine where American interests are so clearly and so profoundly on the line. I mean, this is incredible, all of it. Uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, I, I mentioned yesterday that, look, he, he clearly, he may not be running for president yet, but he's certainly flirting with the idea. And it's more than flirting. I think he's even asked the idea of a presidential race to the prom. Maybe not quite going steady yet, but uh, okay. Uh, Governor, Governor DeSantis has a chance in the midst of all this horror with uh, Hurricane Ian in Florida unconfirmed reports of over a hundred fatalities DeSantis has been very front and center in handling this and that's good that's an indication of that energy in the executive that's Alexander Hamilton's phrase he wrote about that in Federalist and the uh, the point about energy in the executive is that the one thing you cannot take away from DeSantis no matter how you feel about him in terms of policy or personality or anything, the guy's an energetic governor. He's not somebody who blends into the wallpaper. He's somebody who stands out and stands up. And uh, this is Governor DeSantis reporting on the reports of uh, fatalities in Lee County, Florida, 21. We have had the two unconfirmed fatalities in the sense that we don't know that they're linked to the storm. I mean, our assumption is it, it likely is. And so basically FDLE will, will make that assessment uh, and then that, that will be reported. Uh, but, but that's what would we have. That number that was put out by Lee is basically an estimate of, hey, these people were calling, the water was rising on their home. They may not ha have ended up, uh, ended up getting through. Okay, and then he said he spoke uh, to President Biden this morning and again, it goes very much to the credit of Ron DeSantis that he's highlighting the fact that at a time of emergency, politics is put aside. You cooperate with the President of the United States, even when he's a potential opponent. Listen. Tony. 
We have received a major de disaster declaration for nine counties, but we do expect more. I just spoke with the president this morning. Uh, he offered support. I told him the thanks for this, but because the storm has moved uh, inland and caused uh, a lot of potential damage in the center part of our state, that we are going to be asking for those counties to be expanded and included there. But for now, we have approval for Charlotte, Collier, DeSoto, Hardy, Hillsborough, Lee, Manatee, Pinellas, and Sarasota. That will allow individual Floridians to seek individual assistance uh, from FEMA. Okay, uh, this uh, is is all an indication of things operating in a an appropriate manner, and uh, and also the vote in the Senate, the overwhelming vote in the Senate to uh, prevent the government from shutting down is another indication that we are moving forward. Uh, we will come back with uh, more on the very latest on uh, the hurricane news and uh, the very latest on <laughs> why it is, and, and maybe you have some theory, why it is that it's very, very easy for the city of Seattle to buy buildings, particularly old and unused hotels, but, uh, and for King County to buy those buildings. What's so, so very difficult is to get some of the homeless people who are sleeping on the street or camped out in parks to actually move in to a free apartments. Uh, uh, honest to goodness. Yeah, this is uh, not exactly a field of dreams. Uh, no, you can't just say, we will build it, we'll buy it, and then they'll come. It doesn't work that way. We'll be right back on The MedVet Show. Biden uh, visited FEMA today, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, and he gave a speech about the devastating hurricane in Florida. The, uh, the real test with the hurricane, and everyone is pointing this out, and it's appropriate, is not simply surviving the storm itself, but cleaning up the mess. Uh, I saw... Uh, images of Ivor City, which is part of the city of Tampa that I'm familiar with. And it's a, a sort of the historic uh, Cuban cigar making parts of, of Tampa. And it's been quite a tourist attraction. And uh, man, it's the, the, there's very real devastation here. And uh, again, and they're not done. Uh, this is President Biden speaking uh, when asked about his relationship with Ron DeSantis, a potential opponent for president, and a, uh, the governor of Florida. Here's what the president of the United States had to say. This is clip 17. How would you describe your relationship and your conversation with Governor DeSantis? It's totally irrelevant, but I'll answer it, okay? In fact, very fine. He complimented me. He thanked me for the immediate response we had. He told me how much he appreciated it, said he was extremely happy with what was going on. This is not about whether or anything having to do with our disagreements politically. This is about saving people's lives, homes, and businesses. That's what this is about. And so I've, been, I've talked to him four or five times already. 
and it's, it's not a matter of my disagreements with them on other right. Yeah, uh, price and pain difficulty. Uh, there's a reporter named Jim Cantor who works for the Weather Channel, and uh, he was in Punta Gorda, Florida, as winds hit at least 110 miles per hour, and he had a little bit of dramatic. Uh, you can even hear it without even having to see it. Just you can imagine the visual impact as well. The uh, reporter for the Weather Channel having a um, serious problem with 110 mile an hour winds and tree branches clip 16 yeah this is extreme bro this is really hammer i just got knocked on my butt you can hardly see venice you can hardly see anything out here uh, a couple pieces of debris look like some some housing uh, styrofoam and things like that that are like underneath the roofing maybe in the roof Uh, yeah, it's uh, not uh, not something you want to stay and see. Meanwhile, talking about not something you want to stay and see, um, King County, that's the uh, county that uh, Seattle is in, uh, and Bellevue, which is the fifth largest city in the state, is also in King County. King County continues to buy hotels and apartment buildings. Why? Trying to meet a self-imposed goal of housing 1,000 of its 10 properties remain vacant. In other words, the city and the county, the King County, has purchased 10 properties. And five of them are sitting there empty. Just months away from the new year, the Capitol Hill neighborhood. It's taken months and sometimes more than to open the properties the county already owns. As of September 1st, 357 people of the 1,600 that to stick into these properties they've been purchasing, they have 357 who were living in four of the 10 health through housing buildings purchased already by King County. An additional 118 people are living in apartment buildings in Seattle whose operations are funded by the county but are owned by the city. That totals 475. A fifth building is being used to house refugees. Refugees from where? From what? Uh, some of these investments, such as the Capitol Hill building, are also intended to further equity, uh, can, uh, can, to further county equity goals. If purchased, the apartments will house people who are queer, a transgender, black, native, and other people of color. The sale is expected to be completed by early October. Is part of the problem here that they only want to welcome homeless people into these buildings if they are, quote, people who uh, are uh, under marginal status, who are queer, or transgender, or native? Uh, 
that's within our initiative to annually reduce racial disproportionality within chronic homeless communities, said Mario Williams Sweet, a major initiative manager of King County. I see. So to reduce the inequities, what they need is some more good old-fashioned white homeless people out there. And, uh, and meanwhile, sticking some of the queer and transgender people who uh, obviously are an underserved homeless sub-community, are they? I, I mean, this is madness. This is madness. And uh, they go on. In October 2020, the county approved a one-tenth of one percent sales tax to take advantage of hurting market, of a hurting market, and to buy vacant hotels as well as new apartment buildings. Well, that, that was a great idea. Now, the problem is they can't get people to move in. And uh, that is, is an extraordinary problem. It, um, the, the reason they can't move in or won't move in is because they don't have enough people to hire to provide the services they're promising as part of these apartment buildings. In other words, you've heard all the slogans that people say, the problem with homelessness, the only thing to do is provide more housing. But they can't get people to move in unless you provide services along with the housing. So far, the acquisition part of the plan has worked. But moving people in has been much harder. At the beginning of the year, 180 people were living in two buildings. At the time, county uh, officials pointed to shortages in the homelessness workforce uh, for the delays. Not much has changed since the beginning of the year. <laughs> we're approaching the end of the year. It's so sad and pathetic. And so have been attempts to denude police forces and to uh, undermine crime enforcement. A disaster. We'll talk about it and how to overcome it. Coming up. bit of blues in uh, the air. Why? Well, one thing to be blue about, about this wonderful country, is not only some of the economic difficulties, but the rise in crime. And the rise in crime in the last couple of years has been dramatic, it's been appalling, it's been tragic, it's been alarming. And uh, one of the scholars who recognizes that and has actually written an important new book on the subject. The book is called Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Uh, the author is Rafael Manguel, who is a uh, senior fellow at Manhattan Institute, and uh, he, uh, he writes, and this is his first book, about what's been going so wrong with the United States, even uh, during earlier periods of prosperity, before the current uh, turn down and the lockdown and all the other difficulties, uh, it is simply a fiction, isn't it, Raphael? That uh, the main cause of crime is economic hardship. 
That's exactly right. In fact, it's more likely to be the case that the truth reflects the very opposite, which is that crime actually is the first order problem that creates economic difficulties and minimizes one's ability to, to move upward on the socioeconomic ladder. I mean, you know, one of the more frustrating things about the crime debate is the extent to which this myth has persisted, this idea that socioeconomic root causes are what drive the sort of violence that many communities across the country are currently struggling with, and that just couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, for one thing, the data just don't support it. I mean, they're, they're very simple measures that we could look at, one of them being the fact that the vast majority of people in poverty do not commit crime. They, they go on to lead very lawful lives. Um, the other thing that we should be looking at is whether there's a, a tight correlation between a lot of the socioeconomic measures that people point to and violence, and there just isn't. If you look at New York City in 1989, which is the year before homicides peaked at 2,262, the city's poverty rate was actually slightly lower than it was in 2016, which is the year before we hit our valley for homicides with just 292. So we're able to reduce homicides by more than 90% over a period in time in which the poverty rate remains essentially unchanged and in fact moves slightly in the wrong direction. We see the same phenomenon with figures like unemployment rates or um, income inequality. Income inequality grew an enormous amount in this country between 1980 and 2020, uh, and, and yet violent crime continued to move down and didn't start to go up until 2020. Um, you know, we don't see violent crime track neatly with recessions or depressions. Uh, crime went down during the Great Depression and went up during the 1920s, a period of economic prosperity. Um, and and they're just there's a lot of mismatch between uh, and among groups who experience poverty uh, and go on to commit violent crime. For example, in New York, uh, uh, Latino New Yorkers and Asian New Yorkers experience poverty at a significantly higher rate than black New Yorkers, and yet black New Yorkers commit violence at a much higher rate than both of those groups. And so all of those incongruities, um, I think, lead, should lead us to the conclusion that what we should be focusing on if we want to reduce crime are the tried and true proven tactics that have led to crime declines in the past, and that is a law enforcement first effort that prioritizes the arrest of criminal offenders, their prosecution, and their conviction, and when appropriate, um, their incapacitation through incarceration. And that's something that I think is, you know, probably the major failure. If you just look at the heinous crimes that occur in any city in this country, you're going to consistently find perpetrators who have lengthy criminal histories, active criminal justice statuses, in other words, people who could have been and should have been but were not incarcerated at the time. Boy, is that I, I was reading this morning about the case of a um, perpetrator in New York City. Actually, it was in Yonkers, New York. Uh, perpetrator was uh, 42 years old. His name was Tamel Esco, and he attacked uh, an Asian woman. She was Filipina. And there's video because there was surveillance video, and you can see the whole thing totally without provocation. He thought she was responsible for the pandemic and didn't know her and punched her more than a hundred times. And then after she was knocked down, he stamped on her face and the rest of her body with his boots. In any event, it's a severe attack. He was uh, uh, just sentenced. He pleaded guilty uh, because they had the tape. He was sentenced to 17 years. And... The question I would ask, guys 42 years old, why are they ever letting him out? What, what sense does this make? 
Yeah, there's this, I mean, you know, people really lean on a, a particular data point which shows that the risk of recidivism goes down significantly with age, which is true generally speaking. The thing that we have to keep in mind is that that risk does not zero out. So if you look at the recidivism studies um, uh, for the United States, the Bureau of Justice Statistics has done longitudinal analyses that, you know, uh, follow offenders for periods of 10 years. What you'll find is that every single age group will recidivate at a rate of higher than 50 percent, even up through 40 and over. The only group that, that recidivates at a rate lower than 50 percent are offenders that are released who are 65 and over. And even those offenders reoffend re at a rate of 40 percent, which is nowhere near close to zero. So there's this idea that we're, we can minimize our risk when if we wait to release people um, when they're later into their stages of life but what that ignores is that there is a population of offenders that is what we call life course persistent in their offending patterns these are you know, psychopaths uh, people who are highly antisocial in their dispositions and are essentially incorrigible and, and that's a reality that we need to grapple with in our public discourse there was a, a, another case that comes to mind on this front, uh, a case of, of a, 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 a person named Marceline Harvey, who was paroled uh, from prison in, I believe it was 2019, after serving a significant amount of time for murdering a woman in the 1980s, which occurred after this person was paroled, uh, after spending a significant amount of time in prison after murdering a separate woman in the 1960s. And, of course, recently that person has now been charged with an additional murder of yet another woman committed at the age of 83. Um, and, and so I think you're asking the right question, which is, you know, to what degree are we lacking the will to completely incapacitate people who have thoroughly distributed through their uh, illustrated through their conduct that they have no intention of playing by society's rules? Um, we're speaking uh, with Rafael Mangual, who is the author of the very important new book. Uh, the book is called Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Uh, can you hang on with us for a little bit while, while longer, Rafael? Absolutely. Terrific. I, I want to ask you about the connection um, as both cause and effect of uh, criminality and the huge surge in criminality and violent crime and homelessness. Uh, the, the standard line uh, appears to be that uh, homeless people uh, basically are uh, just like you and me. They are, they are people who may be down on their luck temporarily and uh, if you believe in the broken windows effect, and I know from looking at your book that you do, uh, then obviously the notion that a broken window or graffiti or a deterioration of a neighborhood contributes to the notion of lawlessness, to the idea that all order has broken down and nobody can enforce anything, then surely the idea of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, if you're in Los Angeles or San Francisco, or maybe, maybe in Seattle, uh, the tens of thousands of people living on the street contribute to that. And the question also that I want to pursue with Rafael Mangual is, uh, what do we do about it? And that we know what to do about it. We know it worked before. Why can't those techniques be reimposed 
to bring down the surge in crime and to make our streets and neighborhoods and cities much safer. We will be right back. Michael Medved show if you talk to people who are trying to run businesses in our urban cores around the country downtown businesses the kind of business that makes one want to come downtown and actually enjoy a, uh, a vital city uh, those businesses are tremendously impacted by the rise in crime uh, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal today about uh, the the crime of stealing from liquor stores downtown, which basically the state of Oregon has been allowing. But aside from the criminality, the other thing you'll hear from people who are trying to make our urban cores viable is the presence of literally thousands of people sleeping on the streets and setting up encampments and basically taking over uh, some of our most important urban areas. How does that fit together with the crime issue? The crime issue is what is endorsed, uh, what is addressed uh, by uh, Rafael Mangual, who is a head of research on policing and public safety for the Manhattan Institute. And the Manhattan Institute was one of the first places to popularize the idea of the broken windows effect. Uh, how do you link together these associated problems, and I believe they are associated, of criminality and homelessness? Raphael? Well, I, I think it's important to understand what broken uh, windows theory actually posits. It's really a theory that recognizes how we psychologically process public disorder. When pro-social individuals are witnessing things like homeless encampments, uh, out, uh, uh, open-air drug use, open-air drug markets, um, public urination, public defecation. When, when they witness that in public spaces, it communicates to them a few things. One, it, it communicates that the individual engaging in the antisocial behavior feels confident in doing so. And the way that that is processed by most people is to say, well, if that person feels confident in doing this in this space, then no one is really in charge. And if no one is in charge, then anything goes. And if anything goes, then I am vulnerable. And what that does over time is it leads pro-social people to avoid those public spaces, which in turn makes those public spaces increasingly vulnerable to more serious kinds of disorder and eventually crime, including violent crime. The thing to understand also about the homelessness problem is that it's not really a homelessness problem, which is to say that it's not one that lends itself to a housing uh, uh, first solution. You know, the, the idea that you can just give these individuals an apartment and that their, their lives will suddenly be okay is, is I think, deeply misguided um, insofar as it ignores the, the significant uh, overlap between homelessness and serious mental illness as well as um, a serious drug addiction. And those problems do lead and are linked with violent crime. And, you know, lots of people will tell you that, you know, a homeless individual is much more likely to be a violent uh, 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 
crime victim than they are a perpetrator, and that's true. But that doesn't mean that they don't uh, pose a risk of offending that is higher than that of the sort of typical um, uh, person on the street. And if you're dealing with someone who is trying to sustain a, a, a serious drug habit that doesn't have a reliable uh, source of income because many people um, you know, who are in that, that point in their lives don't, then that means that you, they, you will start to see crimes being committed just to finance the habit. Um, and of course, this is something that we've seen here in New York, and I imagine in other cities, some significant subset of the homeless population is also suffering from serious mental illness that, if left untreated, um, you know, increases the risk that these individuals will be involved in violent altercations with other people, whether that's pushing someone onto the tracks uh, in front of an oncoming subway train or randomly attacking, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 an instant bystander. This is something that, that we do see. And so uh, I do think there is a link. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think this is the, the main driver of the violence numbers that we've seen go up in cities like Portland and Los Angeles and New York. Um, but it's certainly a problem that's worth dealing with, especially because if you allow public disorder to fester, it really does push people out of those communities. And those people are more likely going to be those who would otherwise spend money uh, at the businesses in those areas that, that, that make up a significant portion of the tax base. And as you erode that population, so too do you erode the economic future of that jurisdiction. Okay. In the uh, brief time left to us, how do we turn this around? In other words, you alluded before to the tremendous, the historic uh, improvement in public safety that really began in New York City with Bill Bratton and, and yes, Rudy Giuliani, uh, whatever you think of Rudy recently. But uh, it changed the city and it ended up changing America for the better. How do we repeat that kind of success? I think what we need to do is, one, recognize that we have a very serious recruitment and retention crisis going on in our police departments across the country. And so solving that problem by making the profession more attractive is going to require significant investment. Once we make that investment, we have to make sure that those policing efforts are informed by data and that, there's a, a, that they're backed by the rest of the criminal justice system, which is, I think, the biggest problem facing communities today. Police officers are making arrests but either prosecutors are choosing not to pursue serious charges or uh, judges are not willing to hand down significant sentences, which means that these individuals are finding their way back out onto the street much sooner than they otherwise should, and then we lose out on those incapacitation benefits. What happened in the 1990s was that all, uh, the, all of the institutions that make up our criminal justice system were on the same page. They were all committed to the same mission. Um, that is no longer the case in, in far too many cities across this country. And so that's the problem that really needs to be addressed. When individuals have repeat uh, contact with the criminal justice system, long rap sheets, uh, the system has to have the, the wherewithal to take them off the street for a significant period of time. Uh, the uh, a title of your book, uh, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong, you're just talking about what it gets wrong. And then you add, and who it hurts most. It hurts most communities of color, communities uh, of, of, with economic challenges. Isn't it the least of these, to use that phrase, who are the main victims of the crime surge? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. If you look at crime in the United States, it's very, very hyper-concentrated, both geographically and demographically. In any city in the United States, somewhere between 4 and 5% of street segments 
we'll see about 50% of all violent crime. And that violent crime is going to be concentrated disproportionately in low-income minority communities. If you look at my home city of New York, for every single year that we have data, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims every single year are either black or Hispanic. Almost all of them are male. And I can guarantee you that black and Hispanic males don't constitute anywhere near 95% of New York City's population. No, no. And uh, again, uh, is it not possible that with this high level of victimization, this can actually be a unifying uh, factor across racial divides, no? One would hope, and that's certainly reflected in the polling data. The question is is whether or not this issue is enough of a motivator to get people out to vote and to vote in ways that you know uh, reflect their their policy priorities. Um, that that remains to be seen. I mean, we saw the the recall election of Chesa Boudin out in San Francisco, which many found to be an encouraging sign. But you know, we also saw a, a similar progressive prosecutor like Larry Krasner sail to reelection. The same for Kim Fox in Chicago. Um, Krasner was in Philadelphia, of course. Now, both of those races were determined in Democratic primaries with very, very low turnouts. And, you know, that is, is going to be the question moving forward, whether a significant portion of the electorate comes out and prioritizes this issue. And uh, I think one of the ways that people can help prioritize the issue and to get a more accurate, more scientific perspective on our crime problems is to take a look at uh, Rafael Manguel's book. It is called Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. It's uh, posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com. Are you working on a follow-up book yet? Not yet, but I am actually right in the middle of writing a book chapter. So uh, it's uh, going to be a contribution to a compendium that's looking at uh, New York's downturn with respect to crime and uh, what's at the root of that. So looking forward to sharing that with everyone once it's out. Well, I appreciate that, and thank you for your important work. Let me also mention that today, this afternoon, uh, and people have been very kind about some of the comments we've gotten on this. Uh, my wife is doing one of her marriage webinars. It's at 3.30 this afternoon, Pacific Time. The topic, Marriage Under Attack, Kids as the Target. It's uh, uh, available tonight, this afternoon at 3.30 Pacific Time, 6.30 Eastern Time. Uh, go to barryshore.com forward slash marriage and uh, get some important perspective from Dr. Diane Medved, my favorite person in this greatest nation on God's green earth.